Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Mythgard Movie Club. We're talking about a fun little movie. Um, I, I say little, but it actually was longer than I remembered. It's over two hours, which I uh, I don't think I had realized because I think most of the times I've seen this is like when it's on like TBS or something, and there's like always commercials and stuff, so you don't really get the full sense of like how long it actually is. But uh, yeah, it was it was a little longer than I remembered it being. But uh, the Fifth Element. Um, so yeah, we're excited to talk about this. It's a it's a fun film. Uh, we'll we'll see how deep it is, uh, or or how deep we all think it is once we get into it. But I think it's uh, definitely got some stuff that's worth talking about. So thank you for joining us. Before we get into the movie, though, let's um, talk through some announcements. So uh, this weekend, just in two short days, is Bay Moot in California. Still. Uh, you can still sign up. I, you may have missed the boat if there are lunch options. Uh, you might be stuck with whatever is left over, but uh, you can certainly register still. Um, if you go out to the Mythgar, or uh, the Signum website, go to signumuniversity.org slash events, and uh, you can get the registration link there. And then uh, coming up soon in, uh, well, soon-ish in February, <laughs> in like three months, uh, soon for TextMood, because they always have their stuff planned way out ahead. Uh, is TextMoot uh, in Houston this year at the Houston Baptist University. Um, registration is not available yet. We're getting close to being uh, able to open that up, but you can, if you're planning to go, submit a, a presentation or, or panel or a paper idea. Uh, the CFP is open, so uh, TextMoot.org, you can get all the details there. And then, of course, our uh, we just sent out the email for this, although registration's been open in a couple of weeks now. Uh, our classes for the spring uh, semester is coming up with a new class on classical myths and legends. Um, some good stuff there. We're also rerunning uh, Corey's Lewis and Tolkien course, which was real fun. I took that uh, many years ago now. I think I think we can say it was like seven years ago. I think he first offered it, and uh, and then uh, his Modern Fantasy two class, which does not require you to have taken Modern Fantasy one. Uh, and, and of course, intro to Germanic philology too, which does require you to have taken the first one of that. Um, so if you're interested in any of those, check out um, our classes page, uh, our future classes page on the Signum University website and uh, check that out. So just wanna make sure everybody knows that our next movie club is going to be um, on December 19th. We're gonna talk about Solaris, um, specifically the 1972, I think, um, version uh, by Andrei Tar Tarkovsky. Um, so I, I can't say if we're saving the best for last because I haven't actually seen this movie yet, um, but I, I suspect we might be saving the hardest for last for whatever that's worth. Right, maybe. Um, I, I think this is going to be um, a dense movie, so um, give yourself some time if you're interested to track it down and check it out and you know, put some thought into it. And um, we hope to see you back for that on uh, December 19th. Um, All right. So, oh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Did I? Okay. Um, nope. Just wanna make sure we introduce ourselves. Um, and actually in the meantime, just a reminder for attendees, um, please be sure to put in questions and comments into the chat box and we will um, keep an eye on that. Um, so I'll go first. My name is Kat. Um, I, with Curtis, um, run the Mythgard Movie Club, and we also host the podcast Cat and Kurt's TV Review. 
And um, I also volunteer for Signum as the academic coordinator. Um, Brenton, would you like to go next after you sip your tea? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Excellent. Thank you. I am a primarily a C.S. Lewis researcher. I look at uh, spirituality and theology in the way that people build their fictional universes, and that's mostly what I do. And I just completed a Ph.D. In, the, in that area. And I teach at Signum University and a couple of other schools, um, trying to, to bring those things together. And I write the, the a bit more popular level blog um, at pilgriminarnia.com, so, which has nothing to do with our topic tonight. Any of it? No. Yeah. You never know. C.S. Lewis comes up in a lot of stuff. Well, yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, usually in my classes when I'm teaching C.S. Lewis, I sort of put a timer on before J.R. Token is is uh, brought up in the discussion. So it's, you know, I think we've gotten all of 40 minutes into a class before that happens. But yeah, so but but yeah, of course I'm I'm a, I'm a fan of all kinds of things, and so I'm here sure as a sheer, just kind of enjoy this film, right? That's all. Okay. Um, yeah, I'll go. I'll go next. Uh, so uh, my name is Dave Maddock. Uh, I'm a Signum alum. Uh, I just finished up uh, my master's at, at Signum, uh, focusing on um, uh, uh, lexomics work in uh, Old English poetry. Uh, so love that experience. Um, my day job actually is as, as a software engineer. And uh, geez, I think this is my my third or fourth um, uh, Mythgard movie club. So I'm I'm excited to be back. Yeah. Good. And I'm Curtis. Uh, as Kat mentioned, uh, we co-host the Movie Club, and and we have a podcast. Uh, I am a digital marketer uh, by trade, and do some outreach stuff for Signum in the in the off hours, I guess. Um, and uh, yeah, looking forward to talking to this. Uh, so this film has been uh, definitely one of my favorites for a while, just in terms of sheer fun. It's one of those that, uh, as I mentioned, I, <laughs> I I always sort of stop and see it when it's on TV. So uh, it's kind of, well, we maybe we can get in, maybe this is a good place to start talking. I feel like it's kind of one of those that it's good to have on in the background while you're doing chores, <laughs> like you're washing the windows or sweeping the floor or something. Um, be that as it may, I've always sort of enjoyed it, thought it was a, a fun little film. So I'm excited to talk about it. Um, and of course, I'm always excited to talk about sci-fi in any format. Um, Devora in the in the questions is um, backing you up. She's saying that of the movies we picked for this year, she um, has been looking forward to this one. So uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of. And I got some really nice, like, you know, hashtag iconic, you know, th comments like that or whatever when I shared on Facebook. So I think there's a lot of affection yeah. for this movie. And I. I think like like we even got a few um, on, on Facebook uh, a, a few mentions of, of people saying they were disappointed they wouldn't be able to be here for this one. So uh, it, it is kind of funny. It uh, in reading up on kind of the the critic views and and um, reviews and stuff, it does seem to be fairly divisive. Like there are a lot of people who sort of dismiss it as just kind of whatever. And, and there are a lot of people who seem to really like it, not necessarily saying it's the best movie ever. It's just that they enjoy it and, and that too. Um, although I think there's certainly a lot to talk, enough to talk about uh, that, that we can uh, bring forward. Um, 
So I wanted to point, so the, the film, of course, is uh, based on a story by uh, Luc Besson and, and directed by him, um, and he co-wrote it, um, starting from what I understand when he was a teenager, a story idea he kind of had, uh, which may tell you more about the story than uh, anything else. But, um, you know, uh, what I wanted to kind of start out with here, and, and we can not well have spent a ton of time on this slide was just kind of point to some of the um, maybe common themes that Besson likes to explore in his uh, in his work, which is uh, the sort of uh, badass female <laughs> uh, coming in to save the day or kill the person or or whatever the the, the situation might entail. Um, uh, and I, I don't think I had realized he had done Nikita, uh, which is often referred to as La Femme Nikita. Um, I, I knew he had done uh, Leon, which um, isn't really about a, a, a female assassin. It's about a young female learning to become an assassin, kind of, <laughs> um, in a way. And and uh, but all these other films, um, I have I had seen Lucy, of course, Fifth Element, um, but uh, yeah, just. Uh, ran on, uh, came across a, a, a really interesting quote, or a, a really apt quote, I should say, uh, from John Couture, who was sort of um, reviewing The Fifth Element um, and, and say, or no, sorry, uh, reviewing Anna, uh, which is Besson's most recent um, film in this genre, I guess, or, or, or uh, whatever you want to call it. Um, it says, stop me if you've heard this one before. An unassuming young female projects a timid front, but is really a sharp killing machine in sheep's clothing. Um, which I just kind of laughed at. I'm like, yeah, that kind of fits for all of these, doesn't it? <laughs> um, but I, I did want to um, sort of bring up, there is, uh, whether we want to talk about it now or kind of talk about it later, there is a fair amount of, of academic criticism on the film and its portrayal of women. Um, not in a necessarily positive light. Um, and Besson himself has been um, in recent years as, as kind of a part of the Me Too movement, uh, accused of uh, quite a few women coming out and, and uh, accusing him of, of uh, you know, uh, inappropriate behavior of various kinds. So, um, you know, whether or not that translates into the film or not, I don't know, but it, at least wanted to sort of acknowledge that up front and, and we can, if we if we want to talk about any of that as we uh, go through, just wanted to bring that up. All right. Has anyone yeah. seen uh, any of these other films? Oh, uh, definitely that has a type, doesn't he? Um, yes, yeah. it's often the same actress. It is, right. <laughs> yeah, there, well, there are. Um, that's something I was definitely going to um, mention, not as something that um, I, I think putting them all in a row like this um, is probably the most indicting kind of way of looking at it. You know, when you kind of realize this is um, not only does he consistently work <laughs> in, a, in a genre, but it very much is a, a subgenre of his own particular style. Like he is a kind of subgenre unto himself in a way. Um, yeah, and it... I, I, I'm sure there's exceptions. Devorah's mentioning in the questions, Valyrian and the City of a Thousand Planets, which is more recent, which um, I actually reference on a different slide, um, mm -hmm. which um, 
I don't know that it entirely bucks the trend, but it at least is a little bit more of a two-hander. Um, the focus isn't quite so much on the single female, um, I don't know, uh, magic dream girl or whatever you want to call her. So um, maybe sure. that one, there might be a couple that, that are a little more um, outside of this trend, but yeah. And, and so I, I think the ones that I have the most affection for, I think, are, are the Fifth Element and and Leon. The, they're probably the ones that I saw um, at a younger, impressionable age that you know I just enjoyed and got a lot of I don't know pleasure out of or something. Um, and it's it's the more recent ones have been more apt to sort of try my patience. But I think that's more a function of when I met them. Um, mm. And you mentioned that it's often the same actress. For me, I feel like the actress has a lot to do with the success of his whole vision here. Um, we can talk about Mila Jovovich um, or Jovovich, however you say it. Uh, I think I actually really like her performance in this, which I think helps me um, overcome some of the more stereotypical or objectifying aspects of her character. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of times with these kinds of roles, I think that in the hands of a lesser performer, the tropes become a little more glaring. And when you have somebody who's, you know, very complex and doing a lot of different things, that can kind of uh, mask it a little bit. So for better and for worse. Yeah, and and I just to point out, uh, there he did do other films. Like this, this isn't mm -hmm. his entire oeuvre. Uh, uh, you know, the, the he actually started out with a, with a number of indie films of uh, which have been sort of lumped into this um, cinema du look, which I have a slide on later uh, movement. Um, he's also per. Deuced. Uh, I mean, he's he's like considered the most famous uh, or, or successful French director, and he's been a producer on a ton of other things too, mm -hmm. um, including like movies like Taken and well, all the Takens and like um, you know various other uh, like Transporter and like like lots of these um, sort of uh, high energy you know uh, action adventure kind of film. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I don't mean to imply at all that this is like the summation of his work, but mm -hmm. certainly is something that he uh, has a clear um, interest in this sort of genre uh, or, or, or type, I guess. I don't, I, I said genre a couple times. I, that's probably the wrong word. Cause I mean, these are kind of different stories or different approaches, but certainly uh, from a characterization, I think there's a lot of, of similarity um, for the the leads in these uh, films. I think the word profile might work pretty well. It yeah, there nice, you go. It has a nice double meaning in, in this kind of case. So I actually saw um, The Messenger was what I saw right after. So mm -hmm. like, I mean, it came out four or five years after or whatever. And, mm -hmm. and um, it actually reshaped the way I watched uh, fifth element, you know, because oh, really? I didn't really know what to do with the messenger as someone who's a you know religious studies historian. It was a bit of a weird 
film to watch, you know, and with the bold subtitle, the story of Joan of Arc, right? You know, like, uh, but I think it could be read basically as a, you know, like a late medieval interpretation of, of <laughs> Fifth Element, I think, you know, I think that's probably, a, I think that's a probably a fair, but even like, like Lucy, you know, like the, you know, the name of our, our kind of the named ancestor that we have in whatever museum, Chicago or something. And, right. and uh, you know, like Angela Angela, you know, uh, like this, this kind mm -hmm. of primal Eve Christ prophetic image that kind of runs through the whole thing is, is a bit, it's a bit interesting. So quite apart from well, the fact that Lucy is the female version of his name. So there you go. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, that's a good point. And I think the other thing besides how I think Mia Jovovich just like is very adept at this kind of role and serves as a really good muse for him. Um, I think the other thing that kind of undercuts some of the stereotypes is that especially with the fifth element and probably the messenger too, you really, for me, I just get the sense that I'm working, the, the language of this movie is very much symbolic and especially looking at some of the things I did in prep for this. Um, it's hard to kind of even critique it in terms of representation of human characters because I'm pretty convinced that um, he's, he's working almost entirely with symbols rather than like mm. psychological characters. Um, now we can argue as to how, how successful his symbols are um, or, or how deep they are. But um, when we're talking about the perfection, I feel like it's less about the idealized human woman and more about a symbol of perfection itself and on a more spiritual or symbolic or mystical kind of plane. Um, and that plays into feminine aspects, but it's not necessarily talking about, um, you know, an individual human woman per se. So. Sure. Um, well, and, and he does play with that a little bit because like there's, all, there's several times where the assumption is this perfect being is a man and then it's, you know, revealed to be a woman, um, in fact. Mm -hmm. Yes, pretty sure. I think the the nude figure confirms that like fairly quickly, actually. So, what's interesting, you know, like the the, the feminist yeah. critique, you know, the feminist critique phrase, you know, the male gaze of the camera lens, right? You know, and then what I find intriguing about his work, I, I don't know that, I don't know that it works to just kind of lump it in one sort of anti or pro camp. But the you've got the you definitely have the male gaze of the camera lens, but you have the female gazing back in a very kind of intent intent way and in, in most mm -hmm. most of his films right and um, so even some of these covers right you know the messenger and lucy there so yeah and i wonder what if Jovo Jovo <laughs> if mila uh was you know like i wonder if if she was kind of amping up like scarlett johansson's become sort of the surprising superstar female actor in in speculative uh, uh speculative fiction on screen of this last decade really mm -hmm. and, and doing some super interesting stuff i wonder if and maybe Bruce Willis of the 1990s. That's a surprise, right? You know, one of the male actually mm -hmm. speculative fiction. I wonder if Mila Jovo, Jovovich was in that same trajectory. And I wonder if Messenger kind of pulled that off. So, mm. of course, there's the whole. Right. Like, and she had the whole Resident Evil series. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And, and definitely, I think, at least for a while, if not still, yeah. she had the 
um, yeah. kind yeah, of speaks version of the kind of pinup. Um, she was definitely like a, a favorite action yeah. um, heroine of kind of genre movies of the, you know, at least of the late 90s and early 2000s, if, if not even still today. So. Well, she looks good in thermal restraints or whatever it was called, thermal bandages, right? And and uh, right. but she has she has a lot of pathos with her her acting, right? You know, very facially focused and and yeah, I, it's funny. I, I I can never remember the name of Resident Evil. I saw it in Japan as Biohazard, <laughs> Biohazard. You know, uh, um, so so anyway, that was quite a franchise. Well, she's a good action star, which again, I think for me contributes to a lot of why some of these work maybe a little bit better than they have any right to is is that she is genuinely convincing as you know the kick-ass action heroine um yeah. and sometimes people especially i think women are are hired for action roles when that isn't necessarily their strong suit and i think she is one of those actors who has both like she has um all the kind of model beauty that you want but she also can physically she has a very um she has a lot of skills and and is very convincing in in her action scenes um which i think i, I just think helps some of these movies get away with it a little more than some of the others and it works really well if you actually watch Messenger thinking of it as a spe spec fic film rather than historical fiction or hagiography <laughs> or something, right? You know, like that's actually a good genre distinction. I think that works mm -hmm. pretty well. So anyway, yeah, no, she's very weird. Yeah. Yeah, no, she's she actually has the I think the best action sequence in this film, not the Bruce Willis stuff um, with the guns, but I think her. Um, her matrix uh, learning of, of uh, yeah. I know Kung Fu, you know, once mm -hmm. like this, this version of it works pretty well on film, I think so. And they all have guns and no one thinks a shooter. It's sort of this weird, um, a really weird scene. So yeah, it's cool. Well, and it's, I mean, it's funny that you bring up the matrix because this preceded that, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. So like, yeah, but right. but she it even I mean, got the little like come hither kind of right. That's right. Yeah. You, you, you definitely you think of that as being the Matrix, but but this was before that. This is her her doing her thing first. Um, yeah, cool. Well, wow. We said more about that slide than I thought we were gonna. Strong slide. Uh, Here we go. So I. Again, like we can we can just start here. I, I wanted to just kind of start off talking big themes because like this is definitely one of those where um, I don't know that there's a lot of subtlety. It's like, boom, big, evil, fiery ball of fire. With a skull coming out yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That it is death. Yeah. Like, like if you didn't know what the bad guy was in this movie, like you really weren't paying attention. Yeah. Um, He's actually a, a motorcyclist out of like yeah. you know, northern, <laughs> northern New York, right? So <laughs> um, they they use this they use this same shot for the token biopic, I think the uh, the war scene there. So oh, there you go. <laughs> the flamethrower, yeah. Very well, they have, yeah. 
That's true. Uh, the, the funniest thing, though, about the the uh, you know the big evil ball of evil is that, at least for me, for most of the movie, I forget that it even exists. Like it's yeah. the yeah. most forgettable ultimate evil of all time. I think. Like you see it yeah. a little bit at the beginning, maybe once or twice. There's a, a cursory shot just to remind us that it exists, but it's it's almost besides the point. Yeah, and it's funny. I rewatched the film this evening as I was sitting on my desk, but I'm fat. Like I'm skipping ahead, like the whatever the 10 second ahead button, 20 second ahead button. And these ones, I'm just going skip, 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 skip. Like <laughs> to me, it, it's almost inconsequential. Like it's just the big bad. It's almost like, a, you know, the, you know, the, the monster of the week, you know, even though it's 1200 miles wide, you know, or whatever. Um, it's just, I think it's a mythic fail as far as the film goes. It's, it's just the, you know, the other side. What's intriguing is the rumored, uh, sequel was called Mr. Shadow, right? Which is the voice from the midst of the of the flame, I guess. You know, is that what we're, is that what we're supposed to think? Who's the who's the guy that called, did I miss this? The who's voice, the guy that well, the voice that call, that talks to Zorg on the phone, yeah. right? When he starts yeah. like bleeding Ble brown yeah. blood yeah. or whatever from yeah. his head, which is one of the <laughs> so, like, so weird and campy. But then there's no wound, like he wipes it away, and it's just like. It's fine. He's fine. No, and yeah, my, that be, because that's so weird and random. That's one yeah. of my favorite little touches of of because like that's that's something very small and quirky and completely unexplained, which yes. kind of yeah. makes it a little bit more interesting than just evil ball of evil. Well, um, I may be I may be misremembering the order, like the sequence of events here, but doesn't. <laughs> It, it like takes in all the communication satellites, right? And yeah. then it calls, like, like the impression I get is that it like has to get all these communication satellites so it can call Zorg. <laughs> like that's the only reason it's doing that. They're like, why is it sucking up every satellite in the known universe? Oh, so it can make a phone call. That's yeah, and not happens. not just Zorg, of course, but Jean Baptiste Emmanuel Zorg, right? And uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, right. just so we're clear. Uh, but, well, it's just because it's that big Zorg building, you know. That's like, right. Well, but there's all these like, there's all these gaps in the film, right? Like the the match at the end, and and like the I don't smoke anymore, and he smoked mm -hmm. all through the film, Rudy, and mm -hmm. and, uh, and 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 this is one of them. Like, so he sucks in all the satellites, makes the phone call. But like Zorg was already doing his evil bidding to destroy the universe for cash. You know, so like, what would did yeah. that come by facts? Well, like, I don't know. So, right, like Zorg is a weapons just... dealer. So, like, I think the implication there is that he's already like Mister Evil, right? Like, he's yeah. he's um, yeah, he's already like doing. I like I yeah, it's so hard because like we don't have like we just know that this evil appears every five thousand years or so. Um, yeah. And, and and you've got um uh, uh what's his name there at the beginning going oh so I've got some time then do I <laughs> oh, um, Luke Perry Luke Perry yeah. thank Classic you Perry. I don't know why I couldn't think of his name but uh, uh Luke Perry yeah like like this idea of just like oh it's just as evil that appears every five thousand years yeah. and and you're just sort of left to say okay like that, that it's just a thing that happens and and we don't yeah. know why and presumably one of these appearances in the past like i know i'm jumping way ahead to the end but like 
is that where the first moon came from as well? Like, is that the implication that like that was another big ball of evil that almost hit us and and got averted at the last minute? Yeah, Stonehenge um, was built as the first circle to you yeah, know, like five thousand years ago. That's what Stonehenge. Oh, maybe. Okay. Sure. Um, you know. I I think. I, I like just kind of on this theme, but kind of stepping back across the whole movie. I, I've seen this movie. I, I'm like you, Curtis. Every time I bump into this on TV, I get stuck. Um, and so I've seen it. I'm not sure how many times. And I watched it twice in the last week. And I still feel like I really don't know what's going on in this movie in terms of the actual, not so much the plot, but the mythology. Um, like I had to actively push myself to pay attention to dialogue in this movie in a way that um, normally I think we're all literary people more than we are even visual people. So we, I think everybody here is more sensitive to dialogue than anything. And you have to kind of train yourself to look at images. Whereas with this movie, I just feel like for me, it's the complete opposite. Um, I, you know, we could talk probably for most of our time about the images. And mm -hmm. I feel like I had to really force myself to say, all right, what are they talking about? <laughs> like, what are the details of what's happening right now? Um, what exactly is the mythology? Like, what is the evil? How long is it? Um, and I understand that it's simple. I don't disagree that that the evil shadow is complex, but, um, but, but even the dialogue that is there um, is, again, I think kind of like you're saying a little beside the point. Um, it's it's more i think i would argue i think this movie is more about the images and less about the specific mechanics of uh exactly what is happening yeah and what they have to stop and why yeah no, I'd, I'd agree with i'd agree with all of that cat and, and i'd say like i think uh i i get the impression through the whole film that that luke is is like really conflicted uh, even himself about what the mythology is like I, I feel like he really wants to make like a, a social a social political film you know like come on the real bad guy obviously is is zork right the mm -hmm. evil industrial war uh war machine uh but he gets guy, blown up two-thirds right? of the way into the movie of course because <laughs> like he doesn't even make it like to the last Bit. Yeah, I know. It's it, 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 this is getting to my point, right? Like, I, I think he 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 can't decide. Am I making this film? Am I making like this grand mythology film? Like, and and there's this weird juxtaposition where, it, at least for me, like I get the impression that neither I can't take either of those uh, evils seriously, right? Like, the the ball of evil obviously is not important, and it's not the main driver of the bad things that happen in the movie. But then you got this other guy who seemed he's kind of an afterthought. He's not as big as like the big evil who we don't mm -hmm. care about, but then he, like you said, he also, he dies early and he doesn't really interact with all our protagonists very much and so on. And it, it all seems it, it has the effect of making it hard to really buy into any of these uh, evils as, as credible threats or real problems. And he, no, he and, and that's, that's something that didn't... Yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. I, I think I stepped over what you said. So no, no, yourself. he just like he he let the priest go. I you know I actually I don't worry too much about Zorg. To me, he's like he's like the Willy Wonka evil genius. <laughs> oh man, imagine how many kids would get hurt in his factory yeah, tour. That's right. You know, you should see what I can do with bubble gum. Just. <laughs> <All right. laughs> 
Jeez. <laughs> Sorry, Kat, go um, ahead. No, um, I was just gonna um, repeat what, you know, kind of reiterate what Dave said about, um, it didn't strike me until this one, how separate Zorg is from the mm -hmm. main story. Like he interacts with the third level bad guys, his kind of alien mm -hmm. guy, minion guys that he, you know, that he's doing the deals with and ordering them around. And he has the one scene with um, Cornelius, the priest, mm -hmm. and he has his phone call with the evil ball. And that's it. Like, that's his only yeah. interaction with the story, full stop. So um, I think I saw someone say, like, oh, it, it's funny that the main villain and the main hero don't, you know, share any screen time. It's like, not only does he not share the screen with Bruce Willis, he doesn't share the screen with like 80% of the entire rest of the movie, um, which is just a very strange choice. Um, that makes me wonder why, like that, I, I have a spidey sense that there's a production reason, like that there's almost like, I'm, this is yeah. completely speculation, I have no basis on this, but that feels to me like, like a scheduling conflict or something where like, that it's just such a such a strange choice to not not only not have him share screen time with the main characters, but really not um, interact with them much at all, even in terms of plot mechanics. Of course, he is a werewolf, so maybe he only could. No, no, that's a later uh, later character, right? You know, sorry, I got I got mixed up there. I thought Gary Oldman did, did brilliantly in this, and then I heard rumors. I don't know this is true because he and I hardly talk anymore. But like, I just heard that he he hated doing the film. Like he was just, yeah. And I actually I, I, I read that the, somewhere as well. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. I, he I, uh, he he well he was in Leon the Professional, and then um he wanted a his he was trying to get his directorial debut financed and the oh, yeah. deal was for Luc Besson, you, you will produce my movie if I appear in this movie. And I guess he's not, I don't know what his thoughts are on the film in general, but at least his own performance, he's not um, thrilled with, great. which I, I can see why, but I completely disagree with him. Um, I, like, I, 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 don't, I don't blame him for feeling that way, but I, I think he's wrong. Um, I think he's really entertaining. Yeah, no, he's good. He's good. Whereas Bruce Willis seemed to love making this movie, which oh yeah, I wonder why. Um, <laughs> yeah, but uh, no, it, it yeah, no, I had read that as well that that Gary Oldman didn't really enjoy uh, or, or like this experience much, and and may not think much about the film itself. But look, uh, this know. is like a go big or go home kind of situation. Yeah, like, I mean, you got to do your big tent movie to uh, finance your your passion projects right i guess yeah. like i don't know i think you could almost see bruce willis sort of smiling behind his role when he was doing this film yeah. it was an unusual you know like we're gonna get uh you know 12 monkeys not a lot of kind of smiling behind that role you know and then you know i see dead people like he has these you know, he has these super intense roles. And in this one, like at, like at one point, he the girl falls into his cab. He saves her. He gets kicked out of the priest's house. And he's lying on his bed dreaming about this girl with a boyish smile on his face while he's talking to his boss, you know, who's Zorg ultimately, who wrecked his cab. And now he's out of life. You know, it's just such a funny, yeah. it's just, just a weird role for him. I love it. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, I mean, he's always, 
you're right. He's had these like really serious roles, but I feel like he's always had like the tongue in cheek side too. Like he did, like he had his whole friends, you know, uh, appearances where he's like, you know, kind of mocking his own diehard stuff yeah. in there and that kind of thing. Um, so I, I feel like, yeah. And, and, and I mean, and what was if, his, if there's um, something else, sorry, I was just gonna say, if there's something else that rescues this film besides the visuals, it's the humor. Like it's just the quirky, weird humor of it all. And, and I agree totally that he's like, you can tell he's kind of grinning behind the mask in a lot of, well, sometimes actually grinning on screen as well. Um, but like, yeah, I, like at one point the, the priest even calls him Mr. Willis. And he goes Dallas, and he goes, "Oh, uh, Mr. Dallas." <laughs> like, no, I I, I, and I don't know if I don't know if that was like impromptu, <laughs> and they just left it in, or if that was actually scripted or what. But like, either way, it's funny. Like, if they intentionally did that, it's funny. And if it was just a mistake, it's funny. Like <laughs> that they just kind of did it. So stuff like that, I think, is is really great. Yeah. In this. Yeah, and I was trying to think of. Um um moonlighting which was his um mm. kind of where he got his role like he has this kind of rom-com um tongue-in-cheek tongue comedy yeah. kind of comedy drama romance action that's like his the the kind of mixture of those elements are i feel like i'm going to keep saying that um that's like kind of where he lives like that's his it's his all, all five thing. of them yeah <laughs> I mean, like it's, five it's elements of Bruce Willis. Those are the four, and he's the fifth. Um, yeah. He's the thing that pulls them all together, and it's like it's not dissimilar to Die Hard, right? Like the mixture of like there's a romance, there's some comedy, there's some action, there's some drama. Sure. Like this is, I think, where he's comfortable, and I agree that he's having um, a lot of fun in this movie. And Christmas, right? It's a Christmas film. You know, it like, is. I, yeah, I'm looking forward to Die Hard 21. Die super duper hard. You know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think one of one of Bruce's specialties is the movie where he just has a really bad day. Like I feel like he's yeah. made that movie right. so many times, and this fits into that. Like this, yep. and actually, maybe it's a good time to switch to the next slide because, like, uh, like, because uh, it's it's very Bruce centered, and like I, I kind of yeah. feel like half of this movie is just Bruce Willis having a really bad day, which is what he does in like every film, and it's great. I, I the scene with the cra the crazy tweaker guy with the gun is hilarious. It's a it's a lucky day, right? Remember he it's says so weird. lucky day. <laughs> no, lucky day. You know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When he's like, I lost my job. I smashed my cab. I I I think of Dumb and Dumber right here, right? <laughs> Our pets' heads are falling off. Like I like I'm expecting him to come out with that, right? Uh, yeah. Man, it's so funny. And and the the phone conversations with his mother are the best. <laughs> The president. Yeah, what was, you had you had a different title for this slide, and it was a quote from the mother, wasn't it? Something about is well, it so it was who calls him like the nastiest dirtbag in the city or something? Yeah, I I listened for it in the film, so I I saw that in a script that I found online, which was not like the finished script, and mm. I could like I was listening for it. I was I was actively like going back and trying to listen to all because like. When you're just watching the movie, you're not paying attention to what the mother says, like other than maybe every tenth word. But like, I was actually trying to like hear everything she was saying to him, yeah. and I couldn't, I couldn't actually hear that line. So I wanted to switch it out with something else. But I thought this was pretty good too. This is um, 
the 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 army guy who comes to recruit him says this to him when he's like look he's like trying to compliment him like oh look, looks like you settled into a wonderful life this is a nice apartment you have here <laughs> the yeah. little like hallway with you know yeah. ultra ultra compact uh, living arrangements there mm-hmm. although the, the the wall that falls down and then the your drive drive up uh, Chinese restaurant yeah like that's, that's pretty cool that's like there are like like when when uh Lila <laughs> sorry I, I got Mila in my head uh um <laughs> Lilo, Lilo, when Lilo. she steps out onto the ledge and sees mm-hmm. the city like that's like you know that you know sure it's not as technically good as like that you know the terrible Star Wars version you know a couple of years later but a few years later but you know it's cool like and it's light and bright and and there are these sort of and and what's really interesting is um my son was watching it with me for the first time and he says oh they took all this like 90s technology and they left it in the future and i'm like no they actually went back to 80s technology like and they moved that 80s kind of pop culture tech for like i expected max headroom to show up you know what i mean yes right and and uh, it's like a bit mirror shadeish, but it's all bright, and you know it takes. So that's all moved forward. So I thought that was kind of a cool, like yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It was a cool, cool design feature. So, I I know we were talking about something else, but I just thought of the apartment, and it's a terrible mm-hmm. apartment. No, that fits in really well, um, at least with kind of what I was thinking about for this slide, because I did want to talk about like, I mean, a, a decent portion of the first half or so of the movie is it this is new york city i think i think it does say that at some point <laughs> although i didn't remember that until i was like researching it I'm like oh it takes place in new york um but there's uh so uh the quote here i have from susan hayward if there is a, a luke besson scholar it's her <laughs> i'm not sure she quite would want to be known as that but like i found several articles uh, academic articles by her um and and uh, in this one article, she's talking about um, not just in the Fifth Element, but kind of in sci-fi generally, this idea of the city body, like the, the city as a body, as a character in film, um, and particularly sci-fi sort of dystopian films. And um, kind of what you were saying there, uh, Branton, about there really is a there. So I, I until I had never thought of this until I read her paper but that moment where you have the chinese uh you know vendor coming up to the window there that that's got to be a callback to blade runner right like to the to the film blade runner where where you know he goes and and is you know there's chinese food and he's you know they're eating it and whatever and um this idea that like like you have these massively tall you know skyscrapers with like you can see you can see in there like with like fire escapes like who's gonna you know walk down there but it's this idea that there's this city that kind of grew organically out of the older technology and still has kind of this real mix of you know new like huge you know mcdonald's you know digital signs and stuff but then like rusty old you know uh 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 fire escapes hanging off the side because probably because of a city regulation that like they never you know got rid of right <laughs> like like every building has to have a fire escape even though yeah. they're practical no, no, no practical use. that's right yeah yeah, yeah. And, and, you know on a skyscraper that's 
8,000 stories higher, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. It's, like, it's like William Gibson meets J.G. Ballard, but with like the design people from Back <laughs> to the Future through two, right? You know what I mean? Like it's, two. it's just like, we're talk about design later. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's like it's a it's much more like a graphic novel on screen than it is those other films like uh, Blade Runner, you know, yeah. um, and they share of course the parent like this. There's a lot of Star Wars homage in in this film, but again, like <laughs> with, like with starting the guns. well and starting yeah no that was perfect that was gorgeous <laughs> and then, but starting in the desert and you know like you know all, all, sure. all the all the rest and and the, that kind of mythic you know serious stuff you get in Star Wars kind of lightens up but. But yeah, no, it is. Uh, um, but the, and then you get the Ballard stuff by being like an endless city, right? You know, uh, yeah. this is like it's infinitely tall, it's infinitely wide, but it's well, still south. That's the romancer too, right? The sprawl. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. yeah um, no, but... um, and the, I mean, another thing it reminded me of, which is later, um, is um, the Doctor Who episode Gridlock with the. Um, the, oh, yeah. the very yeah, yeah. tall and it's it's endless rows of cars that are stacked hover cars flying yeah. cars but are stacked kind of this high and it's so, like an endless um, commute basically endless commute and literally like they just go in circles um forever and yeah. but i remember um well two things um russell davies who wrote that episode said that for him he wanted to try to do something cinematic because for him cinema is vertical and tv is horizontal so to make it cinematic, you have to go up and down. So there's yeah. a lot of like climbing down the layers of cars in that episode. Yeah. Um, and that I think they they specifically called, they didn't call out the fifth element, but they called out um, uh, Judge Dredd, the comics as an mm -hmm. influence, the design of the city. So it kind of occurred to me that's, I know there was comics influence on this movie and uh, probably Judge Dredd and a lot of those 80s, um, sci-fi and cyberpunk kind of yeah. comics have a lot to do with the look of this. Um, and uh, I mean, that that screenshot you have there is very Blade Runner, other than like the color palette. Like it's right. not particularly noirish. Um, yeah. It's not nighttime and raining. But other than that, I mean, the endless kind of grimy city and that big gaudy neon billboard is, um, is very Blade Runner. Um, yeah, so uh, Deborah has two comments here. One, she says, this is the future of DoorDash, <laughs> of just kind of the, the endless, I guess, uh, I'm not sure exactly what she was referring to, but maybe the, 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 the drive car, up right the to, flying, your, the to your window. The Chinese food to your window, yeah. yeah. Um, and then- like, um, He has like a little boat that he kind of, it like is like this hover boat that yeah, he yeah. Sails off into the uh, oh, I think I took that image out, but I did have a picture of that, like the like the hanging there in the middle of the city at one point. Um, and then she also mentions um, the cop car saying NYPD, which I I believe that's right. Um, yeah. Which is another thing that um, I believe Hay uh, Susan Hayward brought up in in her comment about you know again like like the the taxis are yellow. It's it's yellow taxi, right? Like this isn't some future where like like the Kind of that idea, I mean, I, you know, Kat, you were saying like how this film, or someone was saying about how this film, you know, is really just a film of symbols. And like, it's it's funny how those symbols just over time, 300 years in the future, we're still using the same color yellow for our taxis. Like, mm. 
that's an that's kind of an interesting idea. Whereas, like, I I feel like a lot of times the the when we're going into the far or kind of far future of stories like that, there's a, there's a interest in getting away from it's like like how how much will things change? Whereas this is more in a lot of ways like how much are things staying the same? At least in terms of that sort of symbolism and and right. carrying through. Right. Uh, Look at the McDonald's logo unchanged Same <laughs> in 300 years into the future. So yeah, I think that's that is very consistent across. What else could it, what else could it be? But what, I mean, yeah. I, I can't improve I, on perfection. Yeah, I, right. I mean, I it's also product placement, but yeah. Yeah. And it's a, it's a little sexier in the future, I have to say, but the, the you know, uh, it's it's actually kind of smart. You, you say it's not film noir, but it's film or orange right you know like and sort of orange is the new black kind of like uh pop culture moment but you know is you know what's super interesting is that like what like what do we have here that we didn't have in 1914 i mean it's true interstellar travel but like all the models are kind of the, the same right you know the moving pictures is still, you know like you know becomes little screens and you know t you know telephones like there's still all these archaic looking phones all the way yeah. through but but to, but today what do we have that we didn't have in 20 you know in in 1914 like largely like the you know well digital technology but you know like largely the like the symbols in our home are much the same as they were 100 years ago they're just yeah. more efficient and better and and things like that and and brighter and different palettes and stuff so that's kind of an intriguing thing to throw that forward like you know the last great inventions come you know before world war one is a kind of an intriguing you know idea in a space race uh, a world right it's kind of a cool you know yeah. it, it works with the time you know nothing you know there's this 5,000 year cycle there's not really a forward motion it's just change until the time comes again time is nothing or time is the, um Time doesn't matter. Is that yeah, the, time doesn't matter? Just life. Only life. Yeah, the 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 would be mugger there too. I I, I love like the the combination of of high tech and and lo fi. Like like he's just got a screen on his head that he puts down. <laughs> it's just a printed out, you know, like or a painted on like <laughs> picture of the wall behind him. Like it's not even yeah. that like detailed or whatever. And yeah, no, it's just it's just a great combination. I feel like um, those sorts of details. Yeah. Uh, it's like it's Max Hedrum. It's it's yeah. Back to the Future too. It's just such a cool. Yeah, and know. there are so many little throwaway details in this movie. Um, oh yeah, there's some, like so things that just don't serve a purpose. They're just there for the world building and the texture uh, to make you feel like that he just yeah. put something interesting in every little corner. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, so like the, uh, I did want to point out too that the, I mean, this is before like CGI really takes off, right? Because it's like Star Wars that a couple years later in the Matrix that are kind of yeah. that forefront of CGI. I don't think they're really using like, I mean, they might have tweaked a few things here, but like, I, I remember, I remember back watching this originally 20, two years ago or whatever it was and, mm -hmm. and, and seeing like the whole, uh, you know, when, when they're 3d printing, you know, Lilu <laughs> and being like, Oh, that's so cool. But like, now it's like, we actually, we have 3d printing. Like there's like, 
I mean, it's kind of like that, but not really. Like, and it's, you know, like it, it just doesn't look as cool or whatever as it is. Um, but, but there is a, a I, I think generally a lot of the graphics do hold up um, because of there's, there's this mix. And the, the New York City here, they made a 124 scale, which is still pretty big <laughs> of, mm-hmm. um, you know, these huge buildings and then overlaid it with, you know, the, the CGI cop cars and that kind of thing, or all the cars, I'm sure, are CGI. None of those yeah. cars are actually flying, um, uh, just in case you didn't, weren't aware of that. Um, but yeah, no, I, 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 the the amount of detail that goes in that kind of thing, and, and yeah. you know, kind of adds that little bit of realism. They said it took the window, the really long time to make the windows and all those buildings. That was the the particularly difficult part of it. Yeah, and he was smart enough to do it as practically as he could. That's what really holds up is that yeah. most of the alien effects and the models as you're saying and and as much of the special effects as possible they did with real materials which stops it from looking um entirely goofy and where it is goofy it embraces the goofiness and so you again yeah, yeah. you can't critique it because that's kind of the the point of the whole thing right, right. and then uh, men in black just basically plagiarizes the whole you know <laughs> approach but with the alien styles. head kind of thing yeah yeah um so yeah we talked a little bit about the um uh comic book influence which uh not surprising it's because he hired comic book artists <laughs> to help design mm-hmm. a lot of stuff and he was a teenager when he came up with the original story i'm sure there was a lot of influence uh like kat was saying uh on that I, i'm yeah. not sure who slide this is but um, um i put this slide in um yeah and it's not something that i know really anything about um i know very little about comics and even less about french comics but um apparently um bande dessine is bon, this yeah, tradition bon dessine, yeah. bon is um that's true there's not an accent over the the final e there um is so that's this kind of french tradition of of comics and in particular um jean Giraud, who is known as mobius and jean-claude miseré i'm gonna guess um these guys um he hired as production designers so their work was influential on him and also they designed the look of the film so i think if you look at that's mobius is in the kind of the cityscape on the the bottom right and um uh, the one on the top left is from um, a comic called Valerian and Laureline, which is the basis for one of Luc Besson's most recent movies, which was called Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. So it's obviously something that has continued to influence him and he specifically adapted. Um, so, yeah, and, and then just the articles I was reading was kind of pointing out um, probably not terribly um it's it's pretty obvious to see that you know there's influences on other popular sci-fi and cyberpunk from you know the kind of mid-century to the current day so neuromancer and man max alien blade runner star wars um and mobius worked on alien too so there's a lot of overlap between these guys but i mean I, I, they're saying influenced blade runner and i'm sure it did but also like 
again, these are not very, what we think of as Blade Runner in terms of Ridley Scott's vision of Blade Runner. Um, like the brightness of the colors, um, I think is what has more of an influence on the look of the fifth element and stops it from just looking like a Blade Runner rehash of a dystopian futuristic city. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. Um, when I think back to various sci-fi films, uh, Fifth Element really stands out, I think, for that reason. Like, the the color palette's drastically different from from anything else I can think of. Um, and uh, in, in a really gaudy way, too. Like, that I guess works for the film, like, because it, it kind of slots in. It... it, it in a weird way that it's kind of difficult to describe, like a lot of sci-fi dystopian kind of uh, world building, you get like kind of this grimy urban vibe, right? And you have that same vibe in the fifth element as well, but in like a totally different way. Like it's, mm. it's grimy, but also shiny for some, somehow, you know, some like really gaudy colors, but also grimy at the same time. Uh, mm -hmm. It's unusual, but it works really well. Um, and I think really gives the film a, a distinctive uh, look. Mm -hmm. Neither of these three shots are a great example of what I just described, but well, well, but there's the contrast of this shot of New York on the top right, yeah. mm. and this one of when you're pulled out and away, like, and can see the skyline and whatever. This is when the transport's taken off to, you know, to go on their trip to the what was it, Flot Flotsam yeah. Paradise? Uh, yeah. Sometimes I yeah. Flotsam, Flotsam and Jetsam. Uh, yeah. That works for the water planet, but. Right. Um, yeah, no, I like, yeah, maybe it's like when you get up close and you kind of see how dirty and grungy things are, but when you kind of pull back away, there's, there's a little more, uh, looks a little nicer, which is true to life a lot of times, right? Like if you're a little further away, Maybe as things aren't as clear, you don't see all the sort of smudges and scrapes or whatever. Um, okay. And they just keep building out of the like out of the shadow, right? You know, so they pollute like up to I don't know fifty feet, and so they yeah. just keep building above that. You know, and so he's able to hide down there. And there's a whole other like you know where where is 80s sci-fi like urban sci-fi on film? It's like down in the mist, and we only are there for a couple right. minutes while he's trying to escape. <laughs> And if he had gone that way, you know, he probably would have found somebody, you know, to like tr transport data in her brain or like to take him to right. or whatever, you know, whatever, <laughs> you know, maybe some sort of biotech. You know what I mean? All that's yeah. in the film. It's just we didn't get it in this episode. <laughs> yeah. all, all the noir stories are happening on levels 100. Yeah. Right, 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 right. <laughs> well, all the orange stories are happening up, up, um, up, on, up on top, you know, so yeah. it's. But you know there are there are some like like cinematic uh, like um, f filmographic I need a better word you know there are some lovely like picture moments in this mm -hmm. film um, and the stark use of color like Fury Road Mad, Mad Max Fury Road has these long mm -hmm. kind of shots with this one striking image in it or these these contrasts or these intense close-ups and in this film like they don't go there they like 
you know, they're, they're, you know, it's a bunch of people making Lego and cartoons together with a big film budget, you know, and so it just didn't quite get there. It needs probably double the budget to pull it off and another 10 or 20 years of technology. But there are moments where you can see the potential of, of that artistry mm. uh, without losing the playfulness, without losing the campiness or the garishness or whatever it is that they're trying to accomplish. Right. Yeah, it's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm I'm curious what you guys think of uh, the quote that's on this slide. Uh, Patricia Ulmer talking about using symbols, uh, uh, you know, to turn capitalist ideology onto itself, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, do you think uh, the filmmakers are are trying to do that intentionally uh, with this, uh, or does it happen accidentally, or maybe it doesn't work at all? I'm, I'm, this occurred to me as well, and I'm curious uh, what you guys think about it. Hmm. So to give a little background, the, so Luc Besson and uh, a couple other French directors in like this, the 70s and, and early 80s, maybe even into the early 90s, actually, um, they, they've been identified as uh, part of the cinema, cinema du look uh, movement uh, genre. I don't know what to call it really. It's not a lot of films that are kind of classes and not a lot of directors. Um, and Besson is kind of termed as, as one of the leaders of this, one, one of the leaders of like the five directors who are in the movement. Um, but like, it's, it's this very stylized, uh, form of filmmaking and and uh nikita which is like kind of his first really successful uh film is sometimes kind of lumped into that uh but this idea of of the film having or the director having more of a focus on the style and tone of the film rather than the storytelling um and kind of the the way that yeah like hmm, maybe there's a connection here but but it's funny because <laughs> you describe and, this film pretty well <laughs> and in in all of the commentary I've seen they talk about how um, Leon uh, the professional and and then the fifth element especially get away from that and he becomes you know like he uh, Besson becomes the Hollywood of France you know the the whatever the the most Hollywood of French directors or whatever the I forget exactly how they phrase it right um, more more story driven than, than yeah the and and I'm like I don't know like going back uh, I mean there is a narrative to this story um I, I don't know how like there's plenty of holes and and questions about it and we've been talking about some of those and we'll continue to do so I'm, I'm assuming for another at least an hour or so but um like I kind of feel like I don't know. This might just be that sort of like like this is the cinema to look on on a big budget. Like um, it feels to me like there's not as much disparity there. And so um, I I can actually uh, I think I linked to this in our notes doc, but I didn't link to it. Maybe I'll maybe I'll add it to the link here before before we upload the the PDF for folks to look at. But um, in her in her paper, Patricia's kind of talking about um, how cinema du look was sort of dismissed. Like, like that's that's a derogatory term. It's not a term the directors gave to themselves. It's it's that oh, all you're you're so focused on the spectacle of the film that you're missing any kind of story or anything. Um, and and 
uh, Almer here is is kind of saying, well, maybe they're doing something different and and being um, more ironical or subversive or I don't, however you want to put it, and and kind of goes into that. Now, I I don't really know enough because I literally never heard of this type of film before researching uh, for this movie or anything. And and I certainly haven't seen any of, of the films that are supposed to be part of it. So I, I can't speak to it specifically. Maybe I'm making completely inaccurate assumptions and, and maybe there's something really obvious about why Fifth Element doesn't fit into that. But th that's kind of my take on it. And um, in terms of the capitalist stuff, like, how I, I don't know if 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 Cinema Do Look really is doing that. I don't maybe that's the reason why Fifth Element doesn't quite fit because you have things like huge billboards with McDonald's on them, you know, and, and how can you, you know, be sort of take an anti capitalist stance while at the same time uh or 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 critical capitalist, even if it's not anti capitalist, uh, uh you know, stance while you're also like getting lots of money from McDonald's for putting, you know, their, their, their sign in your uh, movie or not. Um, I, I'm trying to think like what other obvious uh, product placements there were. Um, and I'm not coming up with any off the top of my head. Um, the McDonald's one obviously is quite, quite large. It's hard to miss. Um, but yeah. I think, I think you make a good point about the potential hypocrisy of that. Um, but I think one could make the argument that they're making fun of the consumerism and uh, the sexualization sure. of the marketing and so on. So, like, while it's a, ostensibly a, a product placement, like, it's also, uh, you know, like the hipster ironical making fun of the guy who's giving you the money and thereby, like, justifies your acceptance of it because you can look down on them. Like, I kind of feel like I don't know if that's, what, you know, what they're doing or not, but I, I think you could certainly read it in that way. Le hipster. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Like, like, like we're going to, I think each end up kind of like teasing out meaning throughout this film. I, I, I think it's okay to admit, like, <laughs> I don't know if there's any meaning in the film, right? Like, you know, um, but I have to say, like, there's a lot of things I might think about when it comes to this film, like government or good versus evil or love or, you know, you know, whatever mythology. But I, I guess I, I just consumerism is just not really high on my list of the first things that I or or capital mar you know you know market based capitalism is not you know like I I I wasn't thinking about it as much I don't know like I, to me that seems like a, a weak jump I'd want to see the the deep read on that on this oh. particular film and see what else is there. Uh, but uh, I think there are there are stronger elements. However, the 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 idea of visual versus story, I think, like the cinema to look, sounds like a good description for me. You know, like I, that kind of that kind of works. And I, I and the reason I, I'm not sure that they're doing stuff exactly, but I'm going to suggest a little later something that that's that might that's occurring on the film. I don't know if they're doing it because I don't I don't know just how intentional they are. Like there's just. You know, like sure. he had like a 400 page script that he like pulled down to, you know, to whatever a script will end up being, you know, 
you know, 60 to 80 pages, basically 100 pages, including, uh, you know, brief description. I don't know that, I don't, I don't know. And like, when you look at the script, they've published the onset script online, and then they've, there's computer generated audio capture of what the film actually says. There's a lot of differences. Like, there's a lot of strong interpretation. There's a bunch of stuff left out. There's a lot that happened in the shaping of this film. This was an active, live, moving organism, uh, you know, five minutes before it began, went into editing, right? You know, so I, I, I wouldn't, uh, uh, yeah. Anyway, thanks though. Yeah, and, 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 and I should be clear that like Almer was not talking about the fifth element here. She was talking about cinema du look movement mm -hmm. in general. And so this is me kind of saying like, oh, maybe there's some stuff being, that's bleeding into fifth element, but certainly maybe, maybe it's not. And, and maybe, maybe that's the, uh, you know, the success of those, the, the move of his own films leading up to this um, kind of naturally took him away from some of that too. If, if in fact, Almer is right, that that's what he was doing in the first place, um, which may not be the case. I mean, she's, an academic making a argument like she may or may not be right <laughs> as as some of us sometimes are not uh right when we make our own arguments. i just looked it up and i've not seen any of the films on the cinema delivery. yeah i i haven't either so um and, and and deborah don't uh so deborah is mentioning that like she's not sure she even understands what the quote is saying that might be on me because maybe uh, you know it's probably hard pulling it out of context too um, and my own not being entirely familiar so that's that one's on me if I, I chose a bad quote there um, to well, try yeah, to get it and, I mean I can I can see if I think I understand it right which I don't I've, I've read a little of, of read a little about this whole kind of situationist detournement idea and I mean I can see where you could see this film as a break from that because other than the McDonald's product placement, it's not necessarily doing, um, as Brenton's saying, it doesn't seem to be doing what the description here has for De Tournament, which is very much this idea of, um, I think they called it like hijacking of ideas, like turning, taking it, it, this kind of late capitalist ideology or iconography and reclaiming it and hijacking it and turning it against it to critique, you know, what. Yeah they well, see is the corrupt system. So I could see how one could say the fifth element isn't doing that. But on the other hand, I think you're right, Curtis, that like the, I don't know that it's entirely um, spectacle devoid of narrative, but like the two are like basically inseparable, which is I think what we keep going back to is that the images, it's, it's not spectacle versus story. It's like the story is in the spectacle. If you're not looking at the spectacle, that's you're missing where the story is. Um, like the the story is is there's not much story apart from when you look at the images and the spectacle of the thing, and that's where it sounds like it's at least in the tradition of cinema to look, even if it's a big Hollywood commercial blockbuster version of. Right which maybe is a selling out of the values of Simona Diluc. Um, it might not fully represent the kind of political aspects of that theory, but um, 
but at least it seems like I think you're right. Like it's kind of hard to read that first sentence about um, about spectacle and not see that. Uh, yeah, this is very much a style over substance kind of movie. Well, and so because I could I could see some. And again, like I'm not necessarily saying he, he is that he has an anti-capitalist message or not. If there is one, it's in Zorg, right? <laughs> like like he's the clear, you know, weapons man. I like I get the idea that like if he had fleshed it out more, it, it would be like a, a a funnier future version of like the Nick uh Nick Cage movie Lord of War or something, right? Like you know, that that very like that one's like, oh, you know, selling weapons in the Middle East and like there's just this big business of it. But this is like this is like the um ADHD, you know, I just wanna make fun things and blow them up version of that. And like it didn't really have time to actually like flesh out any kind of message to it. Um I also saw commentary about like the environmental message of this film. And I'm like, where is that <laughs> exactly? Like, I'm not sure I understand. Like, like there were a number of articles that talked about like, like the environmental message, uh, you know, in there. Not that it had a strong one necessarily, but that it was there. And I'm like, what of a big fiery ball of evil that crashing in? Like, is this is this a global warming? That recurs every 5,000 years, yeah. Yeah, like, I wasn't clear on exactly what, and I don't, like, they didn't, nobody specified precisely what the environmental message was. So, like, I was left kind of uh, to, to guess. I mean, where I other, than, other than just presenting the future as polluted and kind of grimy. Yeah, maybe. And it seems like the only specific. Um, but just live on but, the top but, level of the city and you're fine. Right. And and again, like that that is seemingly divorced from the 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 big bad, which is very right. much a, a spiritual evil rather than a, right. a, a something created by humankind as far as we know. So is, so rather than Mary Kondo is what's her name, the minimalist Kondo or Kondo Mary, Mary, Mary Kondo. Mary Kondo. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think she they could have used her in this future. Um, <laughs> like, yeah, it's nothing Yeah, you know, to to me, like it's kind of and I, I this you know Zorg. This is the backstory of Tony Stark, right? Like this is have I understood this <laughs> like correctly? Well, I think this is the the projection of Tony Stark, right? Like yeah. it's, it's if if we let him continue. The logical yeah. extreme of, of that's Tony right. Stark. Yeah, rather than the sentimental look, I think this is actually more like. I think it's like what so 12 monkeys is an adaptation of le jeté which is essentially like a powerpoint slideshow um made film right you know um and it's it's a film that's visually kind of rich and and it's trying to do much more philosophically than than the whole can bear and it kind of admits that it's kind of the 12 monkeys too it's it's too heavy for too heavy for the film and 12 monkeys has that same kind of like like strange tech techno future techno past combination that we have in this film so i think it's more like that that trying to use the visual to 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 come up to the front of of the the storytelling so it works there it's certainly it's certainly juxtaposing things um 
so that, that's that's there well i don't know about the capitalist i mean it you know it's like you know this is a prophetic film you know about you know immigration and refugee pref pressures you know in the brexit trump you know post isis era well yeah i mean i think that's an interesting reading of the film you know uh you know it's not very often refugee falls into your taxi cab but you know you got to figure out what to do then um you know uh whether you're in sort of in in europe or in north america but like generally i think you know i don't know it's a film is a film like i think um he makes films that that do have messages and the messages really come to the front in very obvious ways, right? So I'm thinking of one of Corey's favorite quotes of it, there's nothing like looking if you want to find something. And <laughs> I think right. he fills sure. I think his part of like the visual appeal is that he fills this movie with stuff and images. And it's like you can have a lot of fun making that fit. And it doesn't mean that your reading doesn't work. It but that's not the same as as it was intended by the filmmaker. Um mm which isn't the end of the world, you know, if it wasn't intended, doesn't mean it's not there. Um, but yeah. I mean, no. yeah. I was, I was just gonna say, I think, yeah, I think there's a lot of like hints and allegations kind of in here, but like, no, I don't know. If, I, I don't know if any of them actually uh, 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 progress to the realm of message or like, you know, point. I don't know. This, this, this film is like storyboard and set design with benefits, I think. And I think we should, uh, I think we should allow it to be playful in that way. I don't, I think that's okay. Yeah, that's fair. All right. So uh, I know Kat has been dying to talk about um, the perfect, the, the alchemy of the fifth element. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this is my and, bit of, of yeah. meaning or symbol importance. Um, which again, I'm not denying that that this is you know the deepest understanding of alchemical imagery. Um, I think this is very much a a pop um, use of uh, these symbols. Um, it's not necessarily um, going into the depth that a lot of authors have used alchemical imagery, but I, there's enough of it here that I'm convinced. I personally, I'm gonna like if I was a betting person, I would say that. Luc Besson had a book like this, um, the Dictionary of Alchemical Imagery, and that he went through it and threw stuff in. Um, because we have the title, The Fifth Element, which is um, the quintessence, it's, it's the ether, it's you know this kind of medieval understanding of another element that unites and perfects the other four. Um, which was associated with the Philosopher's Stone, the kind of object of the alchemical great work. Um, and all this kind of dialogue with Lilu about how um, she's perfect and she represents healing and she represents unity and love and um, you know the, the ultimate weapon against evil um, is sort of consistent with that. Um, and then we get all this um, recurrent chemical wedding imagery um, with, uh, with Corbin and Lilu. The first time um, when he takes her to uh, Cornelius's house, you know, like he's carrying her in like a bride and Cornelius is right there saying like, oh, the weddings are downstairs and she's not my bride, she's my fair. And like that keeps recurring throughout. People mistake them for husband and wife. Um, and at the end, they end up in this 
well, I mean, the, their admission of love is, you know, the the thing that leads to the fifth element being released, um, which Chris Knowles, who wrote this blog, The Secret Sun, um, kind of points out that uh, it's not Lilu alone that's the fifth element. It's this um, conjuncto. It's this uh, chemical wedding um, between Corbin and Lilu that leads to the defeat of evil at the end. And they end up in this kind of casket-like chamber at the end, um, which I have the medieval image there of the lovers in their casket. So you have this kind of death and rebirth imagery, which is pretty interesting, I think, given uh, Zorg's whole destruction, life, and chaos speech. Um, I think his understanding of it is not the same as uh, Lilu's understanding of death and rebirth, but at least it's playing on a similar theme. Um, and in um, Lindy Abraham's dictionary, which I just pointed out, um, he says that the, mag the magistery of the whole work is that which has black feet, a white body, and a red head, which Lilu has. Um, and yeah, yeah so, feet. well, her like black boots. Oh, her boots. Her, oh, sure. Her little <laughs> combat boots. And fair enough, fair enough. So, I mean, and, and I have a, a second alchemy slide too. There's a lot of like black, white, red imagery throughout, mm -hmm. um, mostly with Ruby Rod here, who um, I couldn't get a good screen grab, but when he first appears on the TV in the beginning, he's got red hair and then he's got white and then he's got black. And his whole color palette is this kind of black, white, red, um, which are the kind of three big main stages of the alchemical work. Um, and I was reading about um, Mercurius, uh, who is the sort of central spirit of alchemy. And it just sounds like Ruby Rod to me. Um, he's the grandmaster of the reiterated cycle. He's associated with communication and messages. So he like talks a mile a minute. He's on, he's broadcasting all the time. He's kind of our MC of the whole event. So he's the spirit that kind of oversees the whole process. Um, he's uh he he kind of he doesn't resolve contradictions because that's sort of the philosopher's stone but he embodies contradictions so he's ambivalent he's double natured he's paradoxical so he's supposed to be androgynous you know he's feminine and masculine he's hard and soft um he's anything contradictory you that you can think of he kind of embodies both at once um he carries um a staff which uh is the kadukia symbol which so ruby's always got this this rod this magic rod that he's sort of carrying around um and the quote this this magic rod reconciles conflict and raises the soul to the temple of wisdom and that's where we end up at the end is this, this temple um and even he's associated with the symbol of the unicorn so his kind of masculine side he's got all these like phallic symbols of his unicorn hair and his big you know, broad stick and everything. Um, so I, I personally, I'm pretty it's got, convinced. It's got the amulet that, too. If you take a look I mean, at the amulet, I think you'll like that. So yeah, I, I'm I'm pretty again. Like, is this the most sophisticated um, use of alchemical symbolism in the entire world? I don't think so. You know, probably uh, John Donne and Shakespeare did it better, but. Um, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty sold for me on that. Like, this is 
you know, a, a, an, an intentional symbol set kind of woven into um, the film. And if it's not, that's fine. It's there and I, you know, and I see it. And obviously like I'm citing some of these other um, blogs and everything that, you know, some other people have noticed this as well. So all of this isn't coming from, uh, from me. Um, there's a few other blogs that you can go out and look at and people have noticed this theme and looked at some of the, the images before. Anyway, was, that's my bid for meaning in the film, that it's, it's, cool. it's yeah. an alchemical wedding that results in, in, in pure love that defeats evil and, and, you know, a purification and unification kind of so I have three quick, <laughs> three quick thoughts. One is that the the picture you have there, the the amulet on his neck, is the sort of vaginal symbol. You got the silver circlet there around around the ruby red at the center. So mm -hmm. uh, balances your thought there. Number there you two, go. what you know, sex connected with death in literature? No, I mean you can't. <laughs> Never. Can't be there. And the third, when you said alchemical, when just before we came on, I so I picked up my copy of the Alchemist, the graphic novel uh, version, um, and it just kind of strikes me that the two priests are captured pretty well from the film are captured pretty well in this. You know, oops. So there's uh, one of the that's Melchizedek, uh, um, uh, who's like a prophetic thing, and he looks like a bit like the Ian Holm character uh, mm -hmm. in the way that they're portraying it. And this one's harder, but this one. Uh, this alchemist there, who's actually making um, gold out of lead, right there, looks pretty much like the priest at the beginning of the film. I don't know the, the, the actor's name, so I'm sure that's entirely coincidental, but it's actually probably more like, you know, like, uh, time to get, you know, you know, you know, something epic that like moves out of us. We have this imagination of what the alchemist kind of figure looks like, and so the priest works well as that sort of stand-in for the, you know, wisdom, the, 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 the bridge between those worlds or whatever, right? So, mm -hmm. right. And um, Devor is asking where the middle image comes from, and I think that's from the Ripley Scroll, which is a, um, which I actually saw. Um, they had it at the New York. Historical Society for the J.K. Rowling exhibit um, about a year ago, and they had a, a big, long six or seven feet of it um, rolled out, and you could see it takes you in um, kind of step by step. It's a kind of how to make um, a philosopher's stone for the inquiring alchemist. Um, oh. So, in case you're uh, looking to um, turn your lead into gold. Yeah, pay off some student loans. Yeah, <laughs> you can follow this quick and easy, easy recipe and have that figured out for you. So, does, does it turn Dogecoin into Bitcoin though? So. <laughs> um, the uh, so uh, yeah, one of the things I, I hadn't I hadn't thought about it. I can't say I hadn't noticed it. I probably did too. But like you were talking about the. Um, I like that phrase, the grandmaster of the reiterated cycle. Um, that mm -hmm. sounds very highfalutin. Um, the but like that's that's a great description of like uh, commuting time shock jock DJ type thing, which is exactly right. Like five p.m. it's time for Ruby Rod, right? Like that's yeah. exactly yeah. what like five to seven p.m. is 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 which is a ridiculous time for an intergalactic radio show like, right. like why why does that what what time zone yeah exactly 
of what planet even um and and but no i, I was thinking about it and 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 the it's not just so it, it is reiterated but it's also ubiquitous right like and i think um like uh, uh as irritated as corbin dallas is when he like meets ruby rod and his little like one word responses he yes. was listening to ruby rod in his apartment back mm -hmm. back when he's like finding out that he won this thing you know this whatever now i I guess we don't know. Does he like? Is this? Does he always listen to Ruby? I mean, he's a taxi driver. He's probably listening to something in his car like all day, right? Um, does he does he listen to Ruby Rod like on, on the normal, you know, daily basis? I don't know. I like. I could almost see like I could see him being annoyed by him, but still listening to him at the same time. It's kind of that funny thing. Right. Uh, I, I get the impression that like. Ruby Rod, if he doesn't have a complete monopoly, it's like almost like, like, like I think yeah. you use the word ubiquitous that like, I don't know that Ruby Rod has a lot of competition out there that he is, right. it, he, he might just be the grandmaster in the sense that he is the official guy on, he's got this market cornered on what he does and everybody listens to him, whether or not they're even a fan. Um, he's, yeah. he's just, he's the one that's there and he presides over everything which is the kind of central idea of you know alchemical mercury as a symbol and, and i realize we're not supposed to dig too deep into actually thinking about some of this stuff but if the big evil ball of evil sucked up all the communication satellites how the heck is he being broadcast across <laughs> not the that, universe not just that but the, pres the president's listening and there's like no comment <laughs> It's like, no, no, shh, 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 I never miss a show, right? I've got 22 meetings after this. You know, like, it's it's so, like, it's, like, it wouldn't surprise me if there's, like, 45 minutes of, like, unfinished tape or something somewhere, right? There's just, like, the show is, it's two and a quarter hours, and it's so, well, it's not quite that, two full hours. It's so fast moving. It just... Mm -hmm you know yeah. uh so but yeah yeah and, but of course the voice from the sky is always important right like sort of playing off the 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 the, the element that that you're talking about cat you know and think of androids dreaming of electric sheep here with the you know the radio broadcasts you know from from you yeah. know the ex extra planetary radio broadcasts that are coming by these you know robotic kind of perfect mm. people or whatever right you know it's kind of an um an interesting contrast in tone and all that kind of stuff that that we have here um but that voice like that spectric does that right like it uses the voice from the sky um you know think of the giver you know the voices that get announced over you know over the loudspeaker for the whole community you know control mm. the whole thing so these voices are important to listen to this one <laughs> It's almost, almost it's almost self-aware though too. That's the great thing about him is that like uh, I, th I think he's almost a perfect embodiment of the film itself within the film, right? Like through the, his whole period, the the whole big crisis scene, you know, on the on the um, on the water planet when uh, uh, through that throughout that whole incident with the gunfights and everything else, like he's doing his broadcast for the whole time, and the the whole event ends and and you know, what does he say? That's, that was my greatest show ever, right? Like he's all about the spectacle, like throughout the yeah. whole, 
incident there, that's all he could think about is that he's he's you know doing this performance uh, uh, on his show within the within the spectacle movie that we've already talked so much about. Um, uh, even right. even I, th I think like he, he's like the perfect spectacle, like just talking about. I, I think he's almost the key to this movie, where like we he's telling us we shouldn't take it too much seri too too seriously because he does he doesn't take himself that that serious, right? Like in the in the the most uh, dangerous part of the film, uh, uh, you know, he's still aware that he's uh, he's performing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, like and and so so yeah so yeah so we don't know why the president's listening. And we don't we don't know how he knows that the president's listening, that he can give tips during the shootout with Bruce Willis, right? You know what I mean? Like it's just yep. it's, it's awesome. It occurs but, to me. But like, that's like again, he knows the president's listening because everybody's listening, right? Like he's yeah, the grand master. Right. He just assumes. Yeah. I yeah, think that like. Corbin <laughs> Dallas is like stuck behind a planter or whatever it is right at the bar. Like, I know. Who's but talking, who are we talking to right there? Yes, but that's again where I feel like as soon as you do that, it, it falls apart. Whereas you, if you look at it in terms of what does he symbolize, like even it doesn't even have to be this alchemical stuff. It could just be what Dave is saying about he's a symbol of the movie within itself. That if you look at it that way, um, then I think it kind of works. Um, it's when you try to t make it work as an actual story with people that it <laughs> it starts to like the lot the 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 plot holes just become a little too uh, big to ignore. I've mentioned Twelve Monkeys because I think the visual links are there, but actually think of, like this is a weird one, but think of um, Baz Luhrmann's Roman and Juliet from the same time period. Mm -hmm. Right. Actually, the the colors, the use of costume, the contrast, mm -hmm. the like the sort of gender fluidity, you know, um, you know, the use of like ridiculousness. Um, now he's really tied to a script for the most part, but you know, it's a it's kind of an intriguing visual overlap in my mind between those two 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 films. So, um, yeah. but uh, well, and he, yeah, Ruby, Ruby has a here. Ruby has a lot in common with with the Harold Perrineau version of Mercutio, who yeah, no, that's, that's also it. Like, mercurial, I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. This is a Mercutio, and of course, look at the the staff, right? When you think of, you know, Mercury, and you look at the staff there, that's mm -hmm. an intriguing kind of, uh, you know, mm -hmm. you know, um, and then of course the, you know, Hermaphrodite, Hermes, messenger of the gods, right? Like, there's kind of a few kind of interesting links that could be there, but. Yeah, no, and and of course, like maybe I'm, maybe I'm just racist. I just made the like the connection between two black characters and two films within two years of each other is like the the dynamic link. But it was actually kind of more the the over the topness of it, right, and uh, the ambiguity of the character. And well, and, the, and it, it it's it's that it's more what you said about like the the gender bending and everything, like um, Mercutio in that movie coming out in drag singing you know, yeah. like that's like the first like big party scene in the in the Baz Luhrmann Romeo and Juliet like yeah. it is a similar there's a similar vibe going on um and apparently um Luc Besson wanted Prince for this role oh, yeah, sure. um yeah, and yeah. um it didn't work out but like which doesn't surprise me because even when I was thinking about how to describe this character it was like well, it's kind of Prince-like in some ways. Sure. Um, so you can kind of still see the traces of that here, I think. 
Yeah, this is, another, be... this is like the Gary Oldman performance where I know some people don't like it. And it's like, I think it's great. <laughs> I don't know. If, if, if you don't like Chris Tucker in this movie, I feel like maybe this movie isn't right for you. You know, like if, if, if he is the symbol of the movie within the movie, um, this is the kind of litmus test of is, are you on the right wavelength or not? I think I'm on the wrong wavelength. I <laughs> like, yeah, I, you know, Kat, I, I will take the rebuke. I'm just not quite there. It's not that I don't get what he's doing. I just, I just found it a bit. I liked it better when, when like his life was in danger, right? Like, like it was just, I found the montage scenes just a bit long and, mm. and, um, you know, but I have to say, one in one of the TV editions I saw once upon a time, some of that is cut, and actually I liked his mm. character uh, when it's cut uh, together. But but like Mercutio with the Romeo and Juliet version, I also like the, you know, the there's masculinity, but then there's this kind of weird drag, and then there's but there's in there's this hyper confidence combined with this sudden doubt, like this doubt. Mm hops immediately to the front so this character grows on me the second time i like it better than the first like this week but mm. uh, um, yeah no i like i like mila jovovich i like her mm -hmm. character. you know so that's kind of for me the and bruce willis being kind of a little boy is kind of you know i kind of like that so so yeah sorry uh, <laughs> and and it sounds like uh Devar agrees with you she says some people are better enjoyed from a distance <laughs> which I, I think is a reference to uh, you know uh, Corbin Dallas listening from afar to yeah. Yeah. Ruby yeah. Rod rather than uh, being up close and personal. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I think we can all agree with that sentiment. It's nothing if not loud, that's for sure. Um, all right, so you know we've got like twenty minutes left here, which is kind of surprising. I wasn't sure if we were gonna make the whole. Uh, two hours on, on this film, but I think we're gonna do it. Um, Dave, I, I don't know if this goes back to talking about the capitalism thing or not at all, but uh, you had some comments here around uh, sort of the, yeah, the broken yeah. glass fallacy, uh, if we can call it that. Yeah, I feel like um, we probably touched on this already somewhat. Um, if, uh, if there was or is some attempt to make a conscious uh, political statement in the narrative, I think it, it's probably a good chance you find it somewhere in this scene here with Zorg, where he gives his big monologue about the the creating a little destruction and how he's helping society by doing this and so on. And um, uh, I like this for, for a couple of reasons. Number one, this is my favorite shot in the film. And everybody, please enjoy my gif over and over again. Look at his hand like through the glass. Like what an excellent shot. This is absolute, my absolute favorite part of the movie is this, is this shot. Um, but um, uh, another thing I found interesting about uh, Zorg's uh, monologue here is, and I don't know if this is intentional or not, I think possibly because of the, for cultural reasons, but the, the argument that Zorg makes is, uh, is made by a French economist, uh, Frederick Bastiat, and uh, in economics it's called the, the broken window fallacy. The idea being that you're making, uh, uh, you're encouraging economic growth by breaking windows, right? And then because now I've got to pay somebody to fix the window and now that guy has a job and et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, the fallacy uh, uh, being uh, the opportunity costs, right? The, what, what Bastiat calls the unseen, right? Like 
the, pro the productivity that went into fixing that window was going to go somewhere else, and it didn't because of mm. the um, of the broken window, right? Um, uh, nice. And uh, what, what I found interesting about this is that uh, uh, Luke uh, Besant does not make that argument, right? Like. Maybe it's coincidental that that he uh, you know re restates the the Bastiat argument um, uh, about the broken window, but the solution that he gives, the idea of like how love conquers all, or or however you want to define it, like is entirely not the solution that Bastiat gives, which is interesting. Um, so either it's totally coincidental, and there is no message in this film, which kind of seems to be the <laughs> <laughs> the consensus from the panel, or so that's uh, the most likely one. But right? what else? Yeah. <laughs> Um, but uh, that that was my little that was my little spiel on on Bastiat and the and the broken window. Yeah, that was gorgeous. Thanks, Dave. That's it is it's a beautiful shot, and I think that the economic theory was sort of a critique of when Keynesian economics gets normalized into, you know, economic policy or something. Uh, I wouldn't have gone there in a hundred years. Yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> but the broken yeah. window broken glass is kind of a it's just hard to imagine some of these being coincidences, but I'll, I'll address that in a few mm -hmm. minutes. I think. So, am I understanding oh, yeah. the the theory right, or does it depend on who you're who's making the argument? Is um, is it both, or is there a distinguishment? Distinguishment? That's not a word. Um, sure. Sure. Distinction. Distinction. That's a between the beauty of the destruction itself, um, like the, the broken glass itself, like even just the little ellipses you have in the quote where what you what you don't have in the quote here is when he goes on to say that what's beautiful about it is all the jobs that the things have to do, that right. the things come out and clean it up. And that's his argument is that I'm supporting life by giving people work. Um, yeah. Whereas, like, I, I feel like the way you have the quote is how I always initially understand his point until he gets to that part. Initially, it kind of seems as though he's saying that the destruction itself is inherently beautiful. And there's something about the play of, of what does he say, um, the, the ballet of form and color that doesn't even depend on the industry of the machines that clean up the mess. It's just the, the broken glass itself. Um, is there a distinction between that and in the argument, or do you think it's the same thing? Um, no, I think that's a I think that's a great distinction, and I think it ties to to the movie better, right? That, that Zorg, I, I definitely could read his uh, uh, Gary Oldman's performance as uh, keying on exactly what you're saying, like the the form and the color, like that uh, that Zorg's real uh, appreciation is with the form and the color, like the the chaos that he's created, right, and how lovely that is, um, and where, and the the making the jobs thing is kind of his societal justification. Mm, um, right. I, I certainly could read that in, in Oldman's performance. I think that works a lot better with the film than the economic argument does. Um, from an economic perspective, uh, that's not really what Bastiat was was talking about. Uh, he was making pretty much a utilitarian argument. There is a related concept uh, in economics called the creative destruction that. Uh, it was popularized by this guy named Joseph Schumpeter um, that does uh, talk more about the value of the value of, of uh, destruction, right? Where um, the, the general argument being that like uh, 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 
new new companies come up uh, uh, in order to displace old slow companies, and so they're 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 causing destruction by overturning these large companies, but they're doing it in a creative way that creates new opportunities, new technologies, new new things, and and all of that. Um, doesn't really seem like that's that's where Zorg's going with it, but um, mm -hmm. but it's interesting enough, uh, nonetheless. Yeah, it, and it it's interesting how because um, like you pointed out, Cat, like there's ellipses in here. It it doesn't go through his whole actual uh, monologue, which is quite a bit longer. Mm -hmm. um, and when it starts out, like it's interesting how it shifts from from the beginning to the end because when it starts out, you kind of almost get the sense of like like the primordial soup kind of thing, like life emerged out of this chaotic, you know, destructive environment um, and like sort of came out of that. And that's kind of what he's perpetuating. But then it gets into, but then it kind of shifts to this, like by destroying things, we're giving people or robots or whatever, you know, we're giving, we're, we're you know, the robots come out and clean this stuff up. And then there's someone who's making the robots and and kind of there's this like, chain of economic or, or whatever activity that's like supporting all these lives like by, by breaking this glass i'm supporting the livelihoods of you know millions of people you know down the chain which is mm -hmm. kind of the, the classical um economic argument as i understand it. It, it it's a lot of the like oh you know this this hurricane will spur so much economic you know uh whatever because now you know the government can come in and, and pay for stimulus to like help the region or you know provide funds and this and that and it's like well i it might have been better for there not to have been a hurricane that destroyed a bunch of stuff in the first place but you know you know either whatever or 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 you know for a man-made example it'd be like war it's like oh you know so yes there was destruction but now like we can rebuild and you know and all this is like well maybe we should have just blown a bunch of stuff up in the first place um yeah. so I actually think that Kat was sort of onto something. I actually think he's responding to St. Augustine. Okay, so this is the mm -hmm. longest speech in the um, in the script, right? So this is the longest monologue in the script. There are other kind of speechy moments. But, like, uh, there are two moments where evil is not simply, like, a lack of something good happening but an active force and then a third one that's attention right so remember the the big evil bag of evil or whatever it's called evil ball of evil right like that's when you do evil to it evil grows so this is not privation this is not evil happening because good is absent but active evil creates and breeds something new that's even eviler than what was there before and here destruction is beautiful right these are the two things and then uh, Lilo's going to ask the question, you know, do humans always create in order to make destruction out of creation? And so it's actually kind of a critical moment. The question of whether destruction is beautiful, whether evil is active, is really kind of a, a, an essential question in, in the film. So I think that's, that's not a bad kind of turn on this glass moment, which I'm getting a little dizzy um, <laughs> watching. I'm trying to watch like the blue light at the top of my screen. I don't, I don't, I don't know if this one will be better. <laughs> no, it's a little better. Uh, depending how long we spend on this screen but yeah so I, but but again like i i don't know that luc besson is saying you know ah augustine right. <laughs> you bastard you know i'm coming right. after you know or or that he's actually trying to to reinterpret it and say that 
whatever anybody thinks, evil's not active and and destructive in a thing itself, but actually is is anti-love. I don't I don't know that we even go quite go that far. So. It it is inter- yeah because like we can it, it's interesting how we can take like some of these ideas and certainly apply them like. Yeah, was he thinking of Augustine? Was he thinking of Bastiat? Was he thinking of, you know, the classical alchemical, you know, symbolism? Or was he just taking, like, things that he kind of knows about through other references and pop culture and whatever? And, I mean, you know, maybe it doesn't matter, you know, because, like, maybe those ideas are just strong enough that you don't have to have the original source to still kind of be responding to it or responding to how it's presented in, in a pop culture sense, but so it, I think it definitely. Can we, but, can we skip, like, I think we should end with this cause it's kind of a fun um, uh, thing and, and go here, which is this, the same question. And, mm-hmm. and what struck me was, and we get this rumor Buffy at the end of season five, you know, jumps yep. off very cruciform. That is your gift. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's like, like, yeah. you know, it's, it's grace, it's substitution, you know, it's, we think it's a descent into hell, right? The the harrowing of hell, like Christ uh, on Saturday or something. It's not, but you know, well, shoot, sorry if you haven't seen that far. But anyway, it's been 20 years. You should yeah. pick it up. So Thanks like, that's right. You know, we th- it, it it parallels so so well that oh, Christ I- moment. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, watch the podcast or listen to the podcast. And so <laughs> you can tell us the episode in the show notes here. But like, but it's it's sort of intriguing. So we have like this, we have a number of cruciform moments, right? We have, uh, you know, Lilo here who, who, you know, has this kind of surrender kind of moment. And then she leaps off the building. Do I have that picture next? I've actually forgotten what I've, what, yeah. So yeah. she leaps off the building in the same kind of cruciform way. Um, and, and so it kind of led me to think about, you know, well, you know, what what do we have here and and actually cats already drawn out well death and resurrections kind of all throughout this film including her you know she's you know there's a literal death of her and a resurrection through technology right a recreation of her dna and uh there's there's sort of death and resurrection moments all the way through like even like in inconsistencies like corbin accidentally freezes these people from the government right so like you've got you've got government dying at the same moment that Lilu's being baptized just above right you know while the priest is in the room you know uh going into the coffin like there's just a lot like ever there's coffins all over the place they sleep in coffins they arise from coffins it's just it's death and resurrection images are all the way through and so when when that happens you're looking for you know different motifs you know is there a christ motif does someone die to save save others and i think that's an essential kind of question Uh, and here you've got the question of good versus evil which is you know at the biggest scope possible in this in this case but also the question of what it means to be human and that's like i'm I'm amazed that kind of like when i actually stopped and listened to the film which i know you're not really supposed to do we discovered but you know and listen to the film like the question of what it means to be humans all throughout if you go to the next slide here you know we have the um you know this this great moment you know humans act so strange what do you mean well everything you create is used to destroy well we call it human nature that's actually kind of an astute you know a, an astute definition of human nature from like a historical theological perspective which i presume that bruce willis hasn't spent a lot of time in seminary um and luke besson either right 
Uh, and and, no, and what did you? She's up to the letter V, with V being kind of an important sci-fi letter anyway. But uh, you know, V is good. You know, valiant, vulnerable. <laughs> he runs out of words, right? That's how quickly you know, like he. You know. But uh, the priest's first name is Vito, right? You know, life, right? There's there mm, yeah. uh, it, it exists throughout, but there's all these kind of like you know, uh, a human shape. So all through the script, there's these notes about humans, sometimes capitalized. Something happens in a human shape. They look like humans, that sort of thing. You know, uh, humans have 40 DNA Mimo groups. I don't know if that's true. She has 200,000 stuff. You know, the perfection thing that you mentioned. The Guardians never really trusted the human race. And then that great moment we saw above where the police say, ask Corbin, you know, you know, are you are you classified as human? And he says, negative, I am a meat puppet, right? A meat popsicle, right? Which is uh, such a, a great kind of answer uh, there. And then the priest, you know, sitting in the bar trying to drink, but he's not very good at it, saying, you know, she's made to be strong, but she's so fragile, so human, you know. Right. And then in the original script, the diva, which is such an interesting, strange character, um, says the same thing when she's she's dying. Um, and there's a few kind of other examples. But then there's also these other things like you're a monster. That's the phrase is used a couple of times to kind of contradict. Right. And so it's kind of an, a neat thing. If you go um, to the to the next slide, which I don't think we should talk about love because we're kind of out of time, you know, in the in this lake grass, lake, this great last scene is again, cruciform scene, right? She she bends over and the light kind of comes out of her and, and saves the world and stuff. But, um, uh, you know, in the script, it says, I don't know love. I'm like a machine programmed to save other people's lives, but never to have one of my own. A really kind of intriguing moment, machine versus humanity. And then in the film edition, I don't know love. I don't know love. I was built to protect, not to love. There's no use for me in anything other than this. So there's a little shift there, but but kind of a human, non-human question. And so I was thinking about this. Well, look, I'm pretty sure he's not slipping in Sunday school lessons, right? You know, we get that. Um, and, uh, um, and I was talking about the uh, the last Marvel film, you know, where everybody, a whole bunch of people die, not everybody, but a bunch of people die. And uh, it's this huge mammoth thing. And I was talking about kind of the self-sacrifice and the, and I was with a European and, and I said, I talked about cruciform, you know, the shape of the cross. And he called me Eurocentric, which was, I thought, ironic, given I'm Canadian and he was European. Um, and, uh, and, and then I said, you know, well, Jesus is Asian. <laughs> you know, and he, like, it just never occurred to him before. And it became this really weird moment for, me, for him, for me and him, I think. You know, he was like, I just went to the movies. And, and, uh, and, and I, you know, I've been thinking about this and I've come to, to think there's sort of an emergent theory that we have to really consider, which is that I don't think, like, I think this film is, a, is, is almost one better read through culture. Uh, C.S. Lewis said this, an allegory of love. You know, I'm going to read through a bunch of books that you probably haven't read, but you should have read. But we're going to not just read the text. We're going to read through the text to the culture behind the text. And I think that this film is great for bringing all these things that exist deep within our cultural memory, deep within our cultural ethos out to the front and then playing with them and just batting them around like tennis balls and stuff like that. And I think he wants to to dive into something mythic. He really wanted to make a film that has this kind of mythic element. Um, and he tried to do that with these the cool tattoos and the symbols, right? Really neat, simple symbology that was used there. The alchemical stuff is kind of peppered through the Egyptology stuff. 
aliens. Uh, you know, he wanted to do it that way, but I think he's actually better at doing it in this way. You know, the the Christ myth that comes up as the the center of you know our Western understanding of what it means to love, which is to give our life away for the sake of someone else. I think that's a kind of a neat thing. So that's my thought. Is this film keeps coming up with these kind of interesting things because they emerge. Like he just allows them to speak. And and so this film isn't just a, a looking glass in the sense that it's a mirror of what us us four people are thinking and a few dozen others, but actually are looking through to, to something that exists beneath that. So that's my theory. I think that's why the, the, the economic stuff sounds intelligent and the alchemical stuff sounds intelligent and the design stuff sounds intelligent. Um, I think the yeah. film references are real. Like he's really referring to other texts and films. You know, that's obviously there. But I think that's the same kind of thing. So that's my theory. That's my thought. That this is a great film for culture. Yeah, and I think that's what I I was trying to get at when I kind of said I think this is sort of um, like a pop version of a lot of these things that whether or not Luc Besson may or may not have um, looked at those specific economists, um, no. you know, theorists. He he probably, you know, I would guess hasn't read Augustine, you know, directly. Not Maybe he has, I don't know. Um, but that doesn't mean that he's not engaging with these theories because they are so pervasive in our culture. Um, yeah. Like, you, you know, I think there are plenty of um, works out there that are engaging with religious and mystical and economic symbolism and theory without necessarily having gone to the original sources that they're they're yeah. engaging with secondary sources that they've encountered these ideas in other people's books and films um, or they're just it's just in the air and these are ideas that we all share even if we don't necessarily know where we got them um, but I, and maybe yeah, that's think, selling him short he might be much more intentional maybe. and well-read than we're giving him credit for we no we i i think he 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 really needs to read charles williams place the lion uh luke besson and and here's why right what you have at the center of this is the a brilliant medieval scholar who keeps playing with archetypal imagery but she doesn't believe it and then all mm -hmm. of a sudden those archetypes come true into 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 real life around them and then she doesn't have the resources to combat them because she has never taken them seriously and i think that's a pretty good definition of his career in this me too movement right he's played with what it means to be a human with what it means to be a woman with how women and men mm -hmm. relate with gender and power and all these dynamics he's played with them as if they're toys but they're actually our stories mm -hmm. and now these stories come up because he never he didn't like I don't know. I don't know him personally. Maybe everything is wrong, but like if these women's stories are true, like he didn't integrate the the question into his life, right? Which mm -hmm. is that that there is dignity, you know, in in otherness and and individuality and and that kind of thing. And so so he played with these. Now it's true a pterodactyl didn't come down and try and eat him, you know, in Brooklyn, like in the place of the lion. But I'm not saying it won't happen. I'm just I think a a Twitter version of pterodactyl has has uh, has come after Luc Besson. No, so, but I, mean, I think a, a more a more satisfying movie would not just play with the symbols of these different ideas, but really tr take them very seriously and engage with them. With you yeah. know, without I, th I mean, I think I think you could. When I say serious, I don't mean losing all of the humor and the wit and the charm of what we're talking about here, but. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think, no, I think that's a really good 
real world application of this of from all appearances Luke is Luke Besson is extremely interested in women and you know what it means to be a woman yeah. in the world it, well in that way but like as a subject for a film um yeah. but yeah like to what extent he's actually incorporated that thoughtfulness um or maybe there's a lack of thoughtfulness which is betrayed in in some of his approaches here um yeah. you know what so i think that's a really interesting way of looking at it yeah and in the end it's kind of interesting she is not the fifth element right love is the fifth element right like yeah, the right. Right. You know, it's 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 and, I, and, you know, I think one of the feminist critiques that I read, you know, is that, the you know, Corbin's the man, God, strong male and she's the uh, infantile female. I don't know. Like I, like when we get to the language bit, I mean, I love the way that she spoke that language. Yeah. I loved I, I love childlike characters, whether they're boys or girls. This is a girl, a woman. Uh, well, she's only a few days old, I guess, or a couple days old. But, you know, like or a few thousand few eons old or whatever same thing and time doesn't matter right so like i i love that and in the end like does he win by like shooting people like in the end like you know what is one of the v words that's really important for him valiant yes and what's the other v word vulnerable vulnerable yeah it's a really important subversion i think it's really neat i just i, I don't think it, it i don't think he took it quite as seriously as as he allowed the myth to kind of emerge out. Anyway, with Luke, if you're watching, thanks for the film. Give me a call. We'll talk about it. I'll buy you lunch. Check out Charles Williams. Yeah, and right. and I'll buy you a copy of Charles Williams Place the Line if you can't come to PEI for lunch. So. Yeah, obviously, I mean, you know, it's it could be easy to do the cryptic thing and try to you know guess what he does know or didn't know. I mean, who knows? It's France. Maybe they teach Bastiat way more than they do in the US, right? Like, it's so maybe, of course it's anti-capitalist. He's French, you know? <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, uh, you know, I mean, who knows? But on the other hand, I don't think this is like the set of the Matrix where the Wachowskis are like forcing everyone to read Simulacra, Simulacra and Simulation you know, because That's, like this is an important philosophical work, you know, that, you know, uh, 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 right, exactly. So, it, you know, uh, there's ranges of whatever, but no, I think, I think you make a really good point, Brenton, about this being, however, however he ran across the ideas, whether it was from the original, you know, text, uh, you know, classical language of Augustine or not, um, or, or you know, just bubbling up through sort of the the symbolism in culture. I mean, clearly, there's enough here that seems deliberate. Uh, you know, however uh, that happened, and then and then enough that even if he is just sort of referencing other movies and things, as part of the pop culture, like you said, and and still worth looking at from that perspective. Um, we're a minute or two over our, our time, but we do we should talk about language because yeah, even like I love when she's like I don't know you, you guys like we actually have a linguist here in the panel at least one linguist I don't know what uh, Curtis and Kat can do but but like I just love hearing her talk like she's so emotive as she talks and I heard that they emailed or something back and forth in the language I can't rem I can't remember what I heard about that the director and and Milo uh, Javovovovich but like like, I, you know, I like she's so like, you know, like, I don't know, like, I'm just like, oh, I like you, you know, like, she's, she's just, 
like there's a lot of energy in that. It doesn't sound to me like the mythic language that's the er voice of the entire universe, the creative element of, you know, language and idea. Granted, I would expect something with more gutturals, but I guess I have Hebrew in my mind, but like, you know, you know, or, or, you know, at, at least an elven kind of tongue, but like, you know, it's at least elvish, right? It's light and, you know, the L's and R's and she's kind of, anyway, sorry, you guys go ahead. I, I'm just going to enjoy what you have to say because for me, it was just so. No, I, I, I would agree with all of that. Um, I I tried to pull up a, as much kind of information because I figured our audience would be interested in this sort of thing. Um, and uh, so the few bits and pieces that I did pull up, uh, uh, number one, I, I, I found it interesting that, that Mila, uh, I read, uh, can speak four languages. So I think she brought a lot of the uh, to the table uh, as well in terms of making that feel natural and sound natural in the film. Uh, uh, reportedly, uh, uh, Besson had um, put together a, a, a small dictionary or a lexicon of, of words. Uh, I think grammatically, uh, it's very close to uh, like a calc of French with a lot of mixed words from all sorts of, of languages, uh, uh, some of which, you know, jo Jovovich uh, uh, could speak or whatever. And uh, so they tried to, to make it as natural sounding as possible uh, by doing that. Um, there was a, a small lexicon that was printed in a book uh, in, in 97 in the same year as, as the film uh, called The Story of the Fifth Element, where Bisson talks a little bit about that, uh, uh, about how he and, and Jovovich uh, uh, playfully communicated with the language during production and uh, 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 had a lot of fun with it. Um, there's a small lexicon that he prints there, um, and a small community sense has kind of elaborated on that, um, expanded, uh, reconstructed the grammar based on uh, uh, the early scripts and dialogue from the movie and uh, 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 material that, that Bassan had um, had printed in this book. And uh, so there's a couple of um, uh, uh, small fan communities that you can find online um, and a self-published uh, book of the reconstruction, um, primarily from from this uh, 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 fan, uh, Leia Fair, um, but uh, very much a fan collaborative uh, effort uh, to reconstruct as, as much as they could from the small bits of, and pieces that, uh, that come down to us. So uh, interesting, interesting little um, uh, conlang. Cool. The conlang folks never fail, do they? <laughs> no. Very I mean, dedicated. Real, yeah. <laughs> real conlangers don't fail, oh, but we've all read lots of books and saw films where the language is just for um, atmosphere. Sure. Right. Like no, it just... and, and, and by that I meant the, 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 the fans in the sense of if you give them something to latch onto, they are going to get what they can out of it. So, um, I mean, and I'm not, I think Dave is by far the most equipped to talk about this. So from my purely untrained ear, um, I feel like that's again part of what I was talking about of just how um, Mila turns something that could have been not that great into something really special and her facility with the language is part of it that um, it does feel very natural. It feels very lived in. Um, it feels, um, and I don't know what I'm basing that on other than just my ear. Um, that sounds like she knows like whether or not it's consistent i can't say but but i believe her when she's speaking it i believe that she knows what she's saying um so she really sells it i guess 
so it doesn't surprise me to hear that they did work out some basics because it doesn't have that that feeling of um, shallowness that a lot of kind of fake languages have. Um, Devar is asking uh, the name of the book, and there's two of them, right? So there's this the story of the fifth element, um, which is where the original lexicon uh, or a portion of it was published, and then there uh, was a book called Divinian, which is the reconstructed. Oh, I think she she might have put that in before. I think she might have been asking about the place of the lion. Um, oh. oh. The, I think that I think she put that in back when we were on Charles Williams. So that's that's a Charles Williams book. I don't know that that's the first Charles Williams book that you should read. <laughs> it, it, it's the first one C.S. Lewis and all his friends read J.R. Tolkien and them. Um, and but I would start with Descent into Hell, then do. Uh, the uh, Arthurian one, then go to Place of the Lion. But yeah, it's Place of the Lion, and maybe his uh, one one of his better pieces of fiction. But it's weird. It's a weird book. It's a hard book. Yeah. Warren and Heaven. I think that's like, that's the most like, accessible. Oh, you think it's the most accessible? I yeah. think yeah, the Arthurian one. But that's me. Oh yeah, no, the Arthurian one totally is the the most accessible. Um, Shadows of Ecstasy is sort of darker, but pretty easy to 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 romp with. But yeah, yeah, Place of the Lion. But this I is think the... I started with all, all. I think I started with All Hallows Eve, so I'm completely so, off all of your recommendations. All, I, all um, Hallows Eve is a good book. Yeah, I think. I have never read anything. I yeah, no, it's okay. We're, you're okay. Yeah, it's, you'll be fine. Dave doesn't think so. <laughs> He's disappointed <laughs> in me. Um, on that note, sounds like we should have a, a signum symposium though on a Charles Williams. Well, I, yeah, I've been, I actually, I, I would love to, I've been kind of playing with screenplays and, and one I would like to do is uh, Charles Williams screenplay, Descent into mm -hmm. Hell, which is a, a, a play within a book, uh, within a story. And I want to add the third layer of Charles Williams life because it's pretty weird and a little disturbing. Uh, and, uh, and so I want to have the three elements throughout the film. So, um, but you know, I call Benedict Cumberbatch like every three weeks and he just never never calls me back so maybe someday and if if he ever does and makes a movie and we can talk about it here in yeah movie. that's it right um, I, he has made some movies <laughs> i mean on that topic of course yeah. if there's a film out of britain that he's not in then we'll talk about that one too right so um all right well on that note thank you all for joining us uh don't forget to uh come see us again when we talk about solaris next month and uh until then have a great time. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Thanks, guys. That was fun. Thank you.